Our lesson this evening comes from the book of Micah, as we begin looking at um, the first two chapters of this uh, book this evening, as we've been making our way through, uh, really through the minor prophets of the Old Testament, uh, last week finishing with Jonah, today putting up with Micah. This evening I want to show what we can learn from those who departed from God in the time of Micah. It's interesting to look at the minor prophets, really look at, there's really so many positions in the Old Testament that we can say that we want to look at what happened to those who depart from God during a time period of fill in the blank. And Micah is not any different. There are those who were living during his time who were departing from the truth. We have to begin in way of introduction as we think about Micah and what we know about, what we know about him. Micah is said by some, as, as we're going to get here in just a second, um, Micah is said by some to be a prophet for the poor and for the downtrodden. And I believe I had that. Here we go. He is said to be a prophet for the poor and the downtrodden. And he's also, the name Micah actually means who is like God. Now, Micah chapter 1, verse 1 is the verse that serves as our introduction before we get into the, the text following. And it says here in verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And so this is the prophecy which Micah was to go out and to preach and to, to uh, reveal to those who were in uh, Samaria and Jerusalem about the coming judgment of them. Uh, and we find, as we can continue reading, as you look through the book of Micah, we're not going to get to the third chapter, but Micah really states his purpose for speaking, at least on one occasion, I think he does actually a few times. So if you look at Micah 3 and verse 8, he says, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Micah 3 and verse 8, that would be the purpose of Micah speaking. And he actually will state something similar as we go through this in Micah chapters, in the chapters, uh, first two chapters of Micah. We'll begin first this evening by looking at the judgment on Samaria and on Judah. Beginning in verses 2 through 4, we have what I call a general announcement of judgment towards Samaria. Looking at verses 2 through 4, the Bible says here, Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before, before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. Whenever you think about this idea we find here in verse 3, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. The idea, of course, is not to be literal, as much of Micah is figurative, but the idea is that the Lord's coming down shows not only there a nearness of God, but also shows His wrath. It's kind of like if, when the children are at home or you're doing something they shouldn't, and your father finally gets up out of his chair and comes towards you, you realize you, that you have gone way too far. And that's the idea we find here in verse 3. The Lord, coming out of His place, He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. The idea there is very clear 
that everything is going to tremble before God because he's coming down for one purpose, and that is to bring, uh, or two purposes you could say, for, to bring wrath and judgment upon these people for their wickedness, which we're going to get to here in just a few moments. So the Lord is pictured as coming down to bring this judgment upon them. Looking at verse 5 through 7 here, all this, he says, was, is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. There again, he states why these things are taking place. For the transgressions of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So as we go through this, that's what we want to keep in mind. Now, Jacob stands for both houses, for Israel and Judah. And Israel, in the latter, in the latter parts, we'll see here in verse 5, many believe stands for the northern, tri- northern ten tribes. The cries of ten tribes of Israel are found in, 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 the, in Samaria, and the transgressions of Judah are found in the high places of Jerusalem. We continue reading here in verse 6. We continue reading verse 5, rather. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. This means the idea of a complete destruction. If you're coming down to the foundations, then you're wiping everything off. You ever seen some houses or maybe some old restaurants or things when, when they are trying to renew those things? They'll take it down sometimes to the very foundation and just wipe everything else away. Because why? Because it can't be used again. And that's the idea we find here. They're down to the foundations. They can't, it, there's, no, there's no saving those who are doing that which is wicked. And so he's going to go down to their foundations there. He says, I will uncover her foundations there in verse 6. And verse 7, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it for the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay, they shall return to the pay of a harlot. So we find here they're going to be punished. All their images are going to be beaten or be destroyed. And because their acts of paying and treating, treating idols and things and, and behaving like a harlot and betraying God, God's going to punish them here in verse 7. <clears throat> Looking at verses 8 and 9, we find a, the idea of lamenting over the destruction of Judah. <coughs> in verses 8 and 9, Verse 8 is an interesting verse because it has here in verse 8, you'll notice. He says, Therefore I will, I will wail and howl. This is Micah. He says, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I'll make a wailing like the jackals and a, and a mourning like the, like the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Most or should say many believe that this idea of being stripped and naked is not literally being the idea of someone going nude, but the idea that he is being stripped of his normal clothes and instead going through here as a captive, like we might say of a prisoner. It's like someone goes to a jail and what happens? They strip them of their clothes and they put on their, their prison garb, their jail garb. Sometimes they're bright orange. But the idea here is that he is going to go through there as a captive. He says, I'll make a wailing like the, like, like the jackals in the morning like the ostriches. So he's doing what? He's wailing and shouting out at them because of their sins. He says for her wounds, which is a reference to their sins, he says are incurable. Now when are sins incurable? When there is no repentance, right? 
So that's what he's talking about. They're not repenting. Now, as you're going to see later in the chapter 2, there is a remnant that is mentioned. So this is not who he's talking about. He's not talking to the remnant. He's talking to those who are in sin, not willing to come out of it. Their, their wounds or their sins are incurable because they're not going to repent of it. He says, For it has come to Judah, it has come down to the gate of my people to Jerusalem, there in verse 9. So he is pictured of, of going about wailing over their conditions and their inability as sinners to escape it. Now, verses 10 and following of chapter 1, and many, when we look at this, many devote a lot of time to verses 10 through 16. We're going to devote some of it. We're going to try to go through this a little more quickly than some would, uh, because there is a lot here. But there is mention here, as we look at verses 10 through 16, there's actually 11 different locations that are mentioned in verses 10 through 16. Now, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open this up because we're going to change this in a moment to show the listing of these, of these cities uh, one by one and what's taking place here. <clears throat> so first, let's read through verses 10 uh, through verse 12. We're going to do this a few verses at a time. He says, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. And with Aphra, roll yourself in the dust, Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitants of Shephar. The inhabitants of Zanan does not go out. Beth Ezel mourns its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitants of Moros pine for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Now, to look at these few here, as they're mentioned here, that first location, tell it not in Gath. It is believed by some that by the point of Gath, by this point, Gath have already been destroyed. Thus, there's nothing that could, that could be told there. But if that is not the case, they were still to do what? Well, they were not to tell or not to hear that they were not going to be listening to what's, what's taking place. Tell them not in Gath because they're not listening. The second location is mentioned there, Beth Aphra, a house of dust. That's why we have the idea of rolling in the dust. It was a sign of sorrow or shame. Again, keeping those verses up for you there in verses 10 through 12. And the third location there, the Shafir, that is also known as the, the beauty town or fair town. Neckness and shame will be substituted for beauty or for their fairness. And so really what we find here is what the cities are known for, the exact opposite is going to be taking place. And that's what we find there in those first few verses. Next, as you look at uh, verses, uh, continue looking at those same locations, there are actually six mentioned there in verses 10 uh, through 12. Zonan, or Zainan, the fourth location, also known as Marchtown. No one was to, no one was marching from here. Apparently, they shut themselves up behind the walls of the city. But Ezel, that is the fifth location. Some call it neighbor town. Will not, will not, uh, will no longer, should say, no longer stand by as a neighbor. More off, the sixth location, bitterness waits anxiously. Bitterness is what is attributed to them. They wait anxiously for good, but only bitterness and evil from Jehovah come down to it, even to the gates of Jerusalem. And I believe that is the sixth, uh, verse, sixth location mentioned there in verses 10 through 12. Next we find in verses 13 through 15, a few more. O inhabitant of, of Lachish, harness this chariot to the swift steeds. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of, of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel, of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you shall give presents to, to Morsheth Gath. The houses of, of Echizib shall be a lie to the shall be a lie shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. 
I will yet bring an heir to you in the heavens of Morsheth, or Mershah. The, the glory of Israel shall, shall come to Adullam. So here we find a few more locations that's mentioned. The seventh location, that is Lachish. That is, bind a chariot to the swift steed. That is, make preparation to flee before the enemy. She was the beginning of sin to the people. How exactly is not known. I'm probably sure there's probably a lot of different people out there who think some different things about it. But we find there being they were the beginning of sin. That they're clear that they, they help people to sin. The eighth location being Morsheth Gath. Zion will, will now lose this town. There, as I mentioned there. Uh, the house of, of, of Echizib, the ninth location, known as the false town or lying fountain, will prove true to its name, will become a false possession of the kings of Israel as it passes to their enemies to become their possession. The tenth location there being, being Mershaw, uh, known also as the, the, the air town or the hereditary, uh, hereditary city, those who used to be possessed will become the possession of another. And then the 11th being Adullam, uh, the 11th location, the side of the cave where David once hid. All of what they had been proud of will be brought to shame. And that's that he'll be found there all the way through verse 15. And then in verse 16, make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. The people are shown as being in shame and going into bondage there in verse 16. So we find there in chapter 1 <clears throat> that God is pronouncing judgment. He uses these cities as he speaks through Micah to say what they were known for is now going to be, they're going to be known for the exact opposite. The exact opposite of what's going to happen. So all these cities are pictured as failing and as what they used to be they now become known for other things. They're now failing them for what they used to be. In chapter 2 we find the causes that make the judgment unavoidable. Causes that make the judgment unavoidable. We begin first by looking at the arrogance and violence of the nobles in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Here the Bible says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their bed. That morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence. Also houses and seize them. So he oppressed a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your neck, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. You think about this idea, we find here in verse 1, very clearly this shows that their sin was not out of ignorance, it was not by accident, but it's one that they had to, the Bible says there in verse 1, that they, where they worked out evil on their beds, there in verse 1, at morning light, they practiced it. That is, it was predetermined that they were going to go out and do these sinful things. He says in verse 2, how they abused others, how they coveted fields and took them by violence. Also houses and seized them. So they were literally taking homes away from people, properties away from people. It says, so they oppressed a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. But notice verse 3. Therefore, that is because of these types of things, mentioned in verses 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, that is the sinful family, right? He says, I am devising disaster. It's interesting that in verse 1, they were devising iniquity. 
And because of what they were devising, God wasn't going to devise or devise rather disaster against them in verse three. He says, From which he says, You cannot remove your neck, which means there was no escaping it. You cannot remove your neck, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time, which means they were not going to escape. He says they're walking in arrogance, but that's coming to an end, right? There will be no escape, and no one is going to walk in a haughty way when God is done. We continue reading, looking at verses 4 and 5. We see they now experience uh, what others have experienced from them. There's also nothing left to divide to, to anyone else, we find here in verses 4 and 5. And that day, one shall take up a proverb against you and, and lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people. How he has removed it from me. To a turncoat he has divided our fields. Therefore you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Which means there is nothing left to divide a portion to them. What they have been doing to others was now being poured back upon them. We see there in verse 4 he says, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people. How he has removed it from me. Why? Because they were doing that which was wrong in the sight of God. They were no longer going to be those who were oppressing. Now they're going to be the ones who will be oppressed and punished by God. Looking at verses 6 and following, we find false prophets who would silence the true prophets. Some, there's some debate about whether this, these are true prophets that's being mentioned here or it's false prophets that's being mentioned here. But it would seem... In context, it is the true is the false prophets, <clears throat> along with the wicked individuals there alongside them, who are trying to silence the true prophets of God. Looking at verses six uh, and following, he says, "Do not prattle, you 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 say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. They shall return insult. They shall not return insult for insult." There in verse seven. So Jehovah seeks. They're good, as you find here, that was verse 6. Uh, the great men and the false prophets accuse the true prophets of preaching misfortune and rebukes and pointing constantly to judgment. They say they, he says they shall not return insult for insult. What were the prophets of God doing? Warning the people. They were warning the people. Now let's be honest today, do people always like to hear what is true? No. They don't like to hear what's true anymore. Look at verse 7. You who, are named, you who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restrict, restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Jehovah seeks their good. His words and instructions and his warnings of judgment are intended for the good of the people. Look there again at verse 7. He says, Do, my, do, my, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? The bulls who are doing what is right, his words are what encouragement to them, right? But those who are doing evil, well, they don't like it, as we saw back in verse 6. Verse 8, lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by like men returned from war. Looking at verse 9, the women of my people you cast off from, from their pleasant houses, from their children you have taken away my glory forever. So instead of walking uprightly in his words, the people have become the enemy of God and of those who would walk uprightly. So they're enemies of God and those who are trying to do what is right. Looking at verse 10. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is defiled. It shall, it shall destroy. 
Yes, with utter destruction, if a man should walk in the false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and, and drink, even he would be the, would be the prattler of, the, of his people, of this people. So we find here in verse 10, because of their sin, the oppressors will not be, uh, the oppressors uh, will be cast out of their land. The land is, no, is now only fit for purging and cleansing. There in verse 10, arise and apart, for this is not your rest. Because it is defiled, it shall be destroyed, right? Looking at verse 11. If a man should walk in the false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy of you, to, to you of wine and drink, even he will be the prattler of this people. So Micah now points out the type of prophet the corrupt wants. They want those who, who will say things that are pleasant, right? I will prophesy, prophesy to you of wine and drink. He says that will be their prophet. We lastly find here in chapter 2 a remnant that will be saved as we look at Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And so we, as we look at chapters 1 and 2, we, we talk about the destruction of the wicked. We talk about the prophecy by, from God through Micah about how they are going to be punished. And then we, as we get to the end of chapter 2, we find that a remnant is going to be saved. Looking at verses 12 and 13, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, Referencing no doubt the faithful. O Jacob, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. Isn't it interesting how many times that idea of sheep and flock and the fold is replied to those who are obedient to God? Old Testament, New Testament, it is the same idea, right? Which tells us why God, or Christ rather, is also referred to as our great shepherd, right? He says in verse 13, The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. So we end this section with hope. There will be a remnant, and God would be the one who would lead them. He says, with the Lord at their head. He would be the one guiding them which should have been the case all along, but it was not because there were many who had gone away and gone off into sin. And we also know that they would also go off into captivity later. What are some lessons for us today? God does not punish without reasons. God never punishes someone without good reasons. Looking at Micah chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Why was the Lord coming down to bring wrath? Because they had departed from God. That's why. You know... Now think about that idea of the Lord coming out of His place. You know, the Bible talks about numerous times about how the Lord's anger was kindled against people, how His wrath was stirred up. But to hear the idea that God was so angry that He's figuratively spoken of as one who was coming out of His place and coming down to them. You know, it's one thing to correct a child from a distance and try to tell them, hey, behave, knock it off, that type of thing. Nothing wrong with that, don't misunderstand me. But 
God, no doubt, was, had tried numerous times before to bring them back to where they ought to be, but now he's pictured as coming down out of his place to punish them. Because we find there in verse 5, he says, All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. These people had chances to repent, as Mach had warned them of the coming punishment. Those who remained oppressors and advisors of evil would be punished, as we find there in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, he says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds at morning light. They practice it because it is the power of their, of their hand. Well, these type of people are the ones who are going to be punished. The remnant is spared and let out by God while the wicked are punished. Again, God is not punished without good reason. The faithful, our second lesson is that the faithful can endure when surrounded by workers of evil. The remnant had to be removed from among the evil, right? Now, they weren't always among the evil, but times changed and people began to go against God, and so it became a situation where the remnant was left among and surrounded by evil people. God punished the evil and brought out the remnant. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. Why are they pictured being brought out and gathered together as the faithful of God? Because they were the faithful of God. At that point, they were known as the remnant, the last remaining faithful in that area among those nations, among those groups of people. And God is pictured there in the verse 13 as the one who would be their head. He was at their head. Why was there a remnant? Because there was those, there were those who were still who still remained faithful to God. If there were those who still remained faithful to God, in the times we saw there in chapter one and yes in chapter two of great hardship and persecution and great evil going on, if they can remain faithful during that time of great evil, we can as well. We go back and look at Micah chapter two. We know as we go through there, Micah chapter two, that God calls that time causing an evil time. In chapter two and verse three, latter part of verse three, he says, For this is an evil time. We too can endure when we seem to be living in an evil time. I don't care what age we are, but there are times in our lives we feel like we're living in an evil time. And we can endure if we will remain faithful to God. That's what God wanted them to do, and that's why the remnant existed, because they were, were remaining faithful to God. For the faithful, God is always the one leading. God is always the one leading. For those who are not faithful, God is the one who leads when they allow Him to do so. The Christian should never have that problem of saying, well, we'll allow God to lead us when we're ready to. No, God is leading the Christian. If God is not leading us today through the Word of God, then how can we really say that we are a Christian if we're not allowing God to guide us through, again today, His written Word? For the wicked, they are their own leader, and they will fall into the ditch. Right? That's what Christ mentions there in Matthew 15 and verse 14. The blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. The same idea here during the time of Micah. Why were they blind? Because they were doing evil. 
They were unwilling to repent. Were they spiritually blind? Absolutely. When you get to the point where you're not willing to repent and continue walking your evil way, you are spiritually blind. There is no doubt about it. As Christ points out here in Matthew chapter 15, we know in context He's talking to those who are willing to hold on to their traditions. And He says they're blind, leaders of the blind. What happens? They will both fall into the ditch. Those in Micah's time are falling into the ditch except those who were among the remnants. The faithful were not so. As we think about these things this evening, this evening, we think about the judgment that was coming upon Judah and Israel. The judgment that was coming upon them because of their wickedness, because of their sin, because as they were indeed, as we saw a moment ago, living in an evil time. But they still remained faithful to God. The remnant remained faithful to God. Today, the Christian, the true New Testament Christian, is a part of what we could probably call the spiritual remnant. Because we know today there's a lot of people today who may claim to be a Christian and those who are not a Christian who are not going to be those who get to have heaven as their home. Those who remain faithful to God to the very end, to the judgment day, to our life expires or till Christ returns, are part of what we can call a spiritual remnant, and that is that we get to have heaven as our home. Not remnant in the sense that there's going to be some place left for us and He's going to move us someplace else in this world, but He's going to move us to the heavenly home on the judgment day. So let's be those who make every determination to be a part of those who remain faithful to God during evil times, during difficulties, during times of extreme persecution, during times when others are going down the wrong path. Let's be those who are the odd ones who are not doing those things. Let's be those who are different because we are striving to follow God so that we can have heaven as their home. This evening, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage you in any way. You can come forward now. Let's hear we stand and sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>